Lord, sometimes I feel uncomfortable that uh, I'm so casual with you. Um, sometimes it's, it's too easy to just come into worship and just to think about you as a, a buddy or just somebody who's there. When the word of God tells us that when Isaiah saw you, he trembled and he fell to his knees and he said, woe is me when he saw the fullness of your glory and your holiness. Lord God, so forgive us if we presume too much. Forgive us if we presume too little. And just help us to understand who you are as you are and to see us as we are. And we thank you for the word of God that we do see the fullness of the story that is there is an upper story and this lower story and sometimes we dwell in just our story and we can't get our eyes off of even just our own self-centeredness so god would you shine your light open our eyes not only to see others around us but god to see the fullness of your heavens and you that we are humbled that we may be molded and that we may become a people that, is, that are after your heart, as David is. Holy Spirit, speak to us now and guide us in this time of worship. And we pray these things with joy and gladness, with fear and trembling, with humility and awe and love. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a story that was provided by um, the story publishers, and so don't get mad at me if you don't like it. There were three golfers who were struck by lightning, and they all died, and they all ended up in pearly gates of heaven, and St. Peter met up with them, and they said, does heaven have golf? And St. Peter said, heaven has an incredible golf course. And they, he said, there's only one rule, though. Don't hit a duck. So they said, surely, and when they went out to play, it was a incredible golf course and after a little while one of them hit a duck and St. Peter came by bringing this very ordinary not you know not attractive but just a general ordinary normal lady and he says who hit the duck and the guy said I did so he handcuffs her and he says you know for the rest of eternity you'll be handcuffed so strange story it's not mine so anyway so, so the other two keep on playing, and then the second one surely hits a duck, and then St. Peter comes with another homey-looking lady, and he says, you know, who hit the duck, and then they handcuff. And the third guy plays by himself, and he finishes game without hitting a duck. So he's going, yes. And then suddenly he sees this beautiful woman walking with St. Peter. I mean, just the most amazing woman he ever saw. And St. Peter handcuffs her to him and he says what did I do to deserve this and the woman replied I hit a duck so, 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 so it's a funny story it's not about heaven it's, it's not theology it's, it's to make a point in and of itself that our world we judge by appearances a lot and that's the whole thing that makes this joke funny isn't it we're very judging a book by its cover type of people. And I got to confess, we do this all the time. I did this without even knowing it. When Michelle was a baby and she was three months old, I remember going to a restaurant and in New Jersey, one restaurant, Korean restaurants, they allowed smoking. And we were sitting there with my parents and Kathy and Michelle in a little cradle. And then these four men come in, um, 
typical men, they brought out their cigarette packs, and I was like, no, please don't smoke. And so I was thinking, they're going to smoke. And I looked at Kathy, and Kathy looked at me, and we were thinking about looking through eye, what happens if they light up, we're going to get up and leave or something. Hour and a half passed, we're finishing our meal, and they didn't light up. As soon as we're leaving, the guy, the leader of the pack, you could tell, takes out a cigarette and lights up. And I said, thank you so much for not smoking when we were here. And he says, how could we? you know, with this beautiful baby here. And I walked away so humbled and embarrassed because I looked at these men and I said, oh, these typical men, they don't care about babies. They just care about themselves. And that's what I was frantic. And I realized we judge book by its cover, don't we? We look at the outer appearances. We look at, and we say, oh, I know him. That's them. And that's, by the way, the danger of, of stereotyping. Oh, I know you guys, your type. Wow. And we don't know. And we see in the Bible, today's text especially, God never judges based on external, circum- exterior, external appearances. God never does, looks at us and says, you know, look at the behavior and look at how they look and say, oh, well, he's handsome or she's beautiful, so she must be special. He never does that. So what he does is, as the scripture says, he looks at our hearts. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit. And God doesn't look at the way that people look at. And for God, it's always a matter of the heart. And in our lives, the issues that we have are not personality issues. They're not family issues. They're not organization. They're really our heart issues. Don't raise your hand, but if you struggle with jealousy, envy, greed, you don't have an economic issue. You have a heart issue. If you struggle with resentment, anger, bitterness, and you can't ever find anything good about anything, and you're one of those uh, naysayers, you know, like Eeyore, what a beautiful day, but it'll probably rain. You know, you know, one of those people, you don't have an outlook issue or weather issue. You have a heart issue. If you're the people when you walk into the room and people are like, oh, no. Jason's here. You probably have a heart issue. And when you get angry at God, you know, you don't have a theological issue. It's a heart issue. And so the heart is so impressive and amazing and scary at the same time because God doesn't judge us by our outlook appearance, which I say, thank God. He looks at our hearts. So 1 Samuel chapter 16 God is telling Samuel, I rejected Saul as king. They wanted a king, they got it, and he was not the one. He was arrogant, and he was was presumptive, and he did not obey God. So Samuel is is just screaming, God, you know, what are you going to do? And God says, Samuel, get up. Stop being gloomy. Let's go find that king. And then so Samuel is directed to Jesse. Do you remember who Jesse's grandmother is? Come on. Ruth. Remember Ruth, this Moabite who was brought in by Naomi? And she was a Moabite, but now she became part of God's family. And she gave birth with Boaz to, uh, to uh, Obed. Obed. And then Obed gave birth to uh, Jesse. 
and then Jesse became the father of the man we're going to talk about. So how we see people in chapter 16 clearly is different from the way God sees because look what Saul does. So Saul goes into the family of Jesse and he sees the first son, Eliab, and he goes, surely this is the one. He sees the oldest son, good looking and tall, and he says, that's the king. And what is Saul doing? The exact same thing that he did with Saul. Remember how, why he picked Saul? Saul was a head taller than anyone else. He was truly not Korean. He was somebody who was, who was, he was, he was tall, he was stood out, he's like, that's a king. And the people said, yeah, well, let's make him our king. He was tall. And so the way we look at things, we're like, that's a king. He's a king. And Saul, Samuel was making the same mistake again. And God said, <clears throat> I rejected him. That's not the one. Keep on going. So Samuel says, okay, bring in the next one, Shema. And, and he realizes, oh gosh, this is not it. But it's not just Samuel. Did you catch someone else that judged the book by its cover? Jesse. Jesse, right? Samuel says, bring me all your sons. And Jesse is bringing the tallest and the best looking, the, the biggest and strongest. And he's like, that's it. And Samuel said, what? God said some, one of your sons is the king. Is there not anyone left? And then Jesse, look what Jesse says. Oh, oh my son. Well, there's a little runt out there watching the sheep. And Samuel says, in typical you know, juvenile fashion, I'm not going to sit until you bring him here. I, I like to make it funny like that. Like picture Samuel being like, I want the son now. So they're waiting, and he comes in, and the Lord God says what? That's the one. Anoint him. You see how when they were picking the kings, the way people see what we imagine to be king, what we imagine to be right, is so different from the way God sees everything because he looks at the heart. And you can apply that to everything. Aren't we learning that from the story? The way men and women see the world is so different from the way God sees it in the upper story. Aren't we grateful for that, people? Amen? I mean, if God operated under our human wisdom, we would have a messy world, but thank God he knows better than what we do. And so the way we look at the world, the perspectives, our life, family, leadership, holiness, church, it is so different from what God has laid it out to look like and when we settle for the way we see things we mess it up and so god is calling us samuel don't look at the outward appearance as man does look at the heart so how does god see us god looks at our hearts and god looks at your heart and god looks at my heart can we just do something obvious Right now, God is not looking at you whether you're worshiping hard, whether you're singing loud, whether you're praying, whether you're falling asleep, whether you're sitting there nicely or not. You know what he's looking at when we come into this house of God to worship as his people? Where is your heart? Right? Because isn't it true? If you have a good heart, it'll most likely create a good behavior on the outside. But just because you have good behavior on the outside doesn't always mean your heart is good. Isn't that true? See, one of the reasons why people leave the church, I have a friend who says, you know, Jason, I struggle with God, 
And you know why he struggles with God? I shared this on Friday night. He grew up in the church. His dad and mom are faithful, devoted leaders of the church. Elders, you know, servants, deacons, Bible study. And Monday through Saturday, the way they treat their customers, others, the way they treat one another, the judgmentalism they, they spew out. And the, and the son sees this and says, if, if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't need to believe in God to do that. I'd rather just not be a part of that then, if that's what it means to follow God. And what are they doing? They're misguiding people to know what it looks like to follow God. Because on Sundays, we look so pleasant. We say the right things. Praise you. Peace of Christ be with you. And Monday through Saturday, God is checking out our hearts and saying, is your heart okay? You know, you don't have to be the nice moral person, but God looks right through that and says, what's going on in your heart? And so that's scary. So God looks at David's heart and he says this uh, in chapter 13 before, because Saul rejected, Saul disobeyed God. And Samuel says to Saul, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. So what do we see there? We see something bigger than just he has a good heart. Have you heard that saying? You know, we say this to a lot of people. She's got a good heart. You know, she, she abuses her kids, but she's got a good heart. You know, you know he, 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 he beats up little cats, but he, he's got a good heart. And what are we trying to say? We're trying to say in the middle of all this, he's kind or she's caring and she means well. And God obliterates that. God doesn't want just he has a nice heart. Does he have a heart after God's own heart? And that's the way God is looking at us. A lot of us, we say, we look at each other, I'm not perfect, but I have a good heart, <laughs> if you say so. But God looks at us and says, is your heart the heart that seeks after God? So I, I wanted to study David, and I wanted to say, what was it about this little shepherd boy that made God say, that's the one? So there's a few things we have tons of clues for to know what the heart that seeks God is. One, David, and we look at Psalms to show what was inside David. Here we go. A heart after God is this. One who loves God more than anything else. David wrote this in Psalm 18. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of his song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hands of Saul. He said, I love you, Lord, my strength. David had a heart that loved God more than anything else. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. Today we say, I love you, my bank account. You are my strength. <laughs> I love you, my children. You give me purpose and meaning in life. And that's true, but not, they're not the most important thing. They're limited. I love you, my job, because you... And, and what does David love the most? He loves God with all of his heart. He's not religious. He's in a relationship with God, saying, I love you more than anything. So two, what about his heart? David has, is one who has absolute faith in God. 
Do you remember what happens after this story? You know this story. Remember that guy, Goliath, nine foot tall? Again, not Korean. He's huge, nine foot tall. And David goes to him when everyone, the king is going, I don't want to fight him. And David goes, I'll go, I'll go, let's go, let's go, let's bring this on. I'm going to go. You cannot defile my God like that. And this is what David says. The Lord, when Saul says, you're crazy, you're just a little kid. You can't fight Goliath. And this is David's response. In 1 Samuel 17, 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. By the way, he beat a lion and a bear, so he's got some things under his belt. Will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you talk like that? I don't talk like that. And I'm so embarrassed. God has seen me through. And I need to talk to troubles and say, you got trouble? Trouble. You want to mess my life up? The Lord who delivered me from my sin, from my drug addiction, from my alcoholism, the Lord who delivered me from my selfishness, he's going to deliver me over you as well. Do you talk like that? I want to talk like that. That's bad. Man, financial troubles. I'm not going to be shaken. Relationships, social structures. I'm not going to be shaken. You're going to mess me up? My faith is in the one true and living God, and you will not defeat me. Amen? David looks at Goliath and says, you're nothing because the Lord is on my side. Three, he's one who desires to please God more than people. Uh-oh. Come on, let's repent, folks. I am a people pleaser, I confess. It's so hard for me not, I got better, but some of us, we're people pleasers, are we not? We care more about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. And I want to tell you something that happened with David. David is running away from Saul because Saul says, I'm going to kill this kid. He's going to replace me. Saul's going crazy. And so Saul is with his soldiers chasing after David and his men. And Saul has to do what every human being has to do. He has to take a pee. You with me? True story. So, so Saul says, you stay out here. I see a cave. And Saul goes in there with his robe, and he's about to do his most vulnerable thing. You can't be most vulnerable than a man taking a pee. You know who's right there? David is behind a rock in the cave with all his men. And his men say this, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said you to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is it. This is that God moment. You're going to be king, David. Kill him now, especially in his vulnerable moment. Listen to what David says to him. Okay, all his men. Tell me where David's heart is. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. What David ended up doing was cut a piece of his robe and said, Master, I saw you in there and I didn't kill you. Here's a piece of your robe to prove it. And he was being submissive to his king. 
even though this king was corrupt. What was David driven by? Did you hear it? His ambitions? I mean, God promised him to be king, but he didn't drive through that. Was it driven by the peer pressure of his men? Come on, when you're surrounded by eight friends and they're like, yo, do it, do it, yo, do it, it's your time, just do it. We're going to go, I'm going to do it. What am I doing? You know, and David didn't do it because I'm not in the place of God. I want to please him, not people. Amen? Do you live in a way, do we live in a way that seeks to please and be accepted by this people? Or do you genuinely live to say, God, my heart desires to please you? David, a man after God's own heart. I want to share two more. David was also one who not only loved God, but he desired to do the will of God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, Acts 13, 22, this is what Paul says. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Do you know how you know you're a man or a woman after God's own heart? You don't only want information, but you want determination and will to say, God, not only tell me, for I will do it. A man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, doesn't just want information. He wants to follow the will of God and says, let it be so, I will do it with your help. When we get ordained deacons and elders, what do they say? Will you serve the Lord and God with strength and wisdom? And, and what do we say? I will with God's help. We don't say, now I know. Thanks for that information. We'll see. What did you say? I know. I will. I will do it with God's help. See, Presbyterians were known, stereotyped as smart people who read a lot. I'd rather be known as people who know the word of God and do it. Is that not the people that God has called? So David is one who not only knows it, but he does it. And he seeks to know and walk in God's word. And so he says this, David writes this, For I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. David loves the word of God. You can't love the word of God if you're not in the word of God. You can't follow the word of God if you don't know the word of God. Bible is not something we have. Bible is something that we absorb and say, as Pat prayed, God, reveal yourself to me and I will do it. And David is saying, I love your word. I love it. I want to do it. So what does it mean to have the heart of God? This is pretty cool. So that's what it looks like, but what does it mean? Somebody, some commentator noted, it could be translated as this. David was a man who sought after God's own heart, but it also means David was a king who had the very same heart of God. Isn't that cool? Why is that important for a king? When you have a king who has the same heart of God, what do people see? Our king is a godly king. And the king's life points people to follow God. And so what God is telling us to do through Samuel is this, that God is asking us, will you have the same heart that is in God? Don't have a Jason Coe heart. 
but give a, have a Jesus Christ heart of people that have the same heart of God. I want to end with three just summary thoughts just to bring this all together. Number one, I got good news and bad news. God will never judge us by our externals, meaning your appearance, your behavior. Can we say hallelujah? I mean, come on, seriously. You're like, woo, thank goodness. Because if James Lynn or Charles saw me, you know, maybe on a spy cam and that one moment I did something wrong and I was judged, uh, I could look bad, you know, or if the camera was always on us. But that's the good news. God doesn't look at us merely by our external appearance. I'm losing hair. God loves me the same. Hallelujah. But here's a, ba- here's a bad news, and it's scarier. This is much scarier. He judges you by the condition of your heart. Can we go back to the physical appearance? I like that better. Because I could take a shower and wear makeup. See, you could alter your external appearance, can't you? But how do you change your heart, which God judges? Go to church more often? That'd be nice, but that won't do it. That'll actually make you more proud. Look how often I go to church. Start helping more people more? That's nice, but that doesn't change your heart. It actually makes you more self-righteous. Do you see all the good stuff I do? I feed the homeless. I'm a pretty good guy. So how do you change your heart? This, this heart that's so corruptible. Even when we mean well, it becomes self-righteous. How do you break that? And we look at David. Why did God choose David? And God saw in David a humility, a heart that yearns to please God, a heart that's willing to say, God, give me your heart and I'll give you my life. And this is what scripture says. And here's the blunt of the story. Can you stop trying to change your heart? You know the only way to change your heart? Do you want to know? It has to be transformed by God in you. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them, God speaking, a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Some of you are doing religion. Good luck. Try to be good. I'm trying hard. I'm trying to be good. Good luck. You're going to kill yourself. What we need to do is say, God, take every aspect of my heart and make it yours. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The heart is salvageable. That's the good news. And we're not the ones changing our hearts. You're playing religious games. What God is saying, surrender. Jesus Christ wants to give you a new heart. And that is what makes us a people after God's heart. So we come to church to say, God, can you renew this heart? I don't want to be merely religious and look good on the outside when my heart is corrupt. I want to give it to you. And the Pharisees, by the way, were the ones that couldn't get it right. They were caught up in their activity that their hearts were corrupt. So are we not a church called to be the people after God's own heart? Can I just say that one more time? We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're the salt and light. We're the hope of the world that God is working through. 
the, not this building, the people that he's redeemed. Are we not a people who should be seeking after the heart of God? If so, please say amen. That's, that's weak, man. That's weak sauce. Are we not the people? Are we not the people who are to be seeking after the heart of God as his redeemed people? We've got to live into that. We can't look like the world. We are set apart and made alive. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were lost. Now we're found. And God is saying, I want you to be a people that seeks my heart. And this is why glory of God is most important. Westminster Catechism says this. You guys know there's a shorter Westminster, bunch of questions and answers about Christianity uh, based on the Bible. And the first one says this. This is all we need to know. What is the chief end of man and woman? What is the chief end of us? The chief end. To be happy, to get what we want, and to live a good life? That's the American dream. <laughs> Here's what God has something even better than that for us. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Meaning you are lifted up in everything I do. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Where do we find our joy? Him. Where do we find our pleasure and treasure? Jesus Christ. Where do you find that celebration and those storms come and we say, I could laugh at the storm. You could take my life, but I have joy that you can't take away. Jesus Christ. And this is what it means to be people after God's own heart. And I want to, the last thought is this. There's something here that David is pointing us to. Did you catch that? David is this little, not obvious chosen cho choice. He was the runt. He was the smallest. And it says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, he will be the king and I will appoint him ruler of his people. The word ruler is translated prince. In other words, God is looking at David and saying, the most least obvious person will be the one that I will use to be the leader and savior. And he uses this word prince. And I want to ask you, who does that sound like? Who does God use to bring redemption and leadership and kingship to you and I? The runt of the litter. I want to read to you this that we usually read in Lent. Isaiah 53, and we'll wrap it up with this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him the way we see. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. God is not just choosing a king for Israel. He's saying the salvation, the leader that brings us together, 
doesn't come from you guys and what we think is strong. It comes from a humble child who is the perfect image of God. And his name is Jesus. And he's going to bring leadership, kingdom, and power, and salvation to us. And he will crush the dominion of sin and death once and for all. And his name is Jesus. Love him. Give your hearts to him. He is the only one that will not let you down. He is the only one that is worthy of our obedience. Let's pray. God, may we see you as you are. May you help us to see as you see. We judge a book by its cover all the time. We get angry when we don't get what we want. And in the midst of all this drama, we forget that you have given us a calling to yearn after you, to love you, to commit to you, and to be your people. Teach us what it means to sacrifice. Teach us what it means to prefer others above ourselves. And more importantly, teach us to be devoted to you, not to the world, not even to our own wishes, but may they all be submissive to you. And whether it be in California or Pakistan, whether it be in Asia, may the people see that you are the true and living king, that you came in a most inconspicuous way and you turned the world on its head and you defeated sin. And with that love that you have for us, May we love you with your complete surrender when we give you our hearts. And may we yearn for the things that you yearn for. We pray this, Lord God, with the prayer that your son taught us. As we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.